Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Philippe Matthews Show at thepmshow.tv. Named the Oprah of the Internet by Mark Victor Hansen, Philippe Matthews doesn't ask questions that are different. He simply asks questions that make a difference. The Philippe Matthews Show features entertainers, bestsellers, authors, thought leaders, change agents, and world-class experts in the field of personal, spiritual, and professional development. An Internet marketing entrepreneur, Philippe is the creator of the How Movement, dedicated to teaching people how to move from the mindset of hope to the process of how. If you are ready to take your life to the next level, move from the mindset of why to the mindset of why not. Tune in right now to this latest edition of the Philippe Matthews Show and watch your life grow. So we're back, ladies and gentlemen, live on the Philippe Matthews Show. Of course, I always say that, which makes no sense because if I wasn't live or we weren't live, the alternative would be pretty bad. But anyway, uh, I am here with uh, an incredible author and educator with a passion for challenging uh, children to think creatively. Her name is Anne uh, Gadzowski. Uh, <laughs> Gad, no, Gadzowski. She's going to say it, but I know her first name is Anne. <laughs> That's her first name, people. Uh, and it, she's the author of teaching guides and uh, classroom reader textbooks and, and, and various things of sort. Uh, an incredible 25-year uh, veteran uh, in the business of uh, educating our young people. And she is here with a new book, love the title, called Creating a Mess. And uh, uh, it's a way cool book because it is uh, teaching kids how to uh, use their creativity, uh, if you will, to create their genius. And how are you, my dear? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me on your show. <laughs> you are welcome. And I butchered your last name, did I not? <laughs> Well, it's Ann Gadzikowski, and I know it's a complicated last name, but if your listeners just know the name of the book, it's called Creating a Beautiful Mess, and it's for parents, and it's about play, as as you mentioned, about creative play. Yeah, so what is, by definition, what is creative play? Well, um, the book is called Creating a Beautiful Mess because it's named after one of the ten essential play experiences described in the book. There are ten chapters. Each one is about a different play experience. Mm -hmm. And Creating a Beautiful Mess is chapter six, and that's about really messy play like Play-Doh and finger paints and making mud pies and um, playing in the sandbox and all that kind of ooey-gooey play. So that's creating a beautiful mess. But when we were looking at what um, to call the book for a title of the book, it seemed to make sense because all play is creative and messy and beautiful in so many different ways. So we decided to name the book that too. 
I love that. Now, depending upon where you grew up and to the parents you were born to, sometimes create there's no such thing as creating a beautiful mess. Uh, <laughs> now we've heard we've heard clean up that mess, uh, but we haven't heard the terminology of beautiful mess. So I love uh, how you are uh, championing the creativity of of of, of the minds of children uh, and working with the parents uh, that. Uh, creative, messy play is a very good thing, but not only a good thing, it's essential. It is. And I do understand. I'm a parent myself, and, you know, there are times when a mess is okay and times when a mess is not okay. So the book includes some practical tips and pointers. You know, a, a sensory experience that really benefits children, um, you know, like finger paints, it, it's important for children because they're learning about texture, about their world. Really young children, this is how they learn about physics, about, you know, the the, um, the properties of water and solids. But they can do that in the bathtub, too, with soap. I mean, there are a lot of different ways that you can have these kinds of experiences in your household without it being total bedlam. Mm, okay. So, so um, it's, I guess this is kind of a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Can can kids play? Is there such thing as enough play? Can kids play? Do they play enough? And if well, so, do they I play the right way? I mean, uh, you know, how 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 do you make the transference from positive play to, to just you yeah. know an empty kind of play that's not going to really move them and grow them? Right. And what, you know, what I hear most often when people are talking about concerns about play has to do with technology. And that's really the main reason why I wrote the book. Because I work with families. I've been teaching and running programs for children for a long, long time. And it seems like just in the last year or two, I've been hearing more and more from parents about really significant concerns that they have. Their children are spending too much time looking at screens, playing computer games on the iPad mm-hmm. or on the smartphones. Mm-hmm. And I am not against technology. There is a time and a place for technology in the lives of young children. But we need to look at what are the children missing out on when they're spending more and more time engaged in a virtual world. What are they missing out on from the real world? And there are some things like playing with blocks or playing with finger paints that are really tangible things that um, – children need to do in order to develop their brains, to mm-hmm. healthy brain development, healthy social development. So the book is a gentle reminder to parents of the kinds of play experiences that are important to children, not just playing on computers. Very, very good point uh, to bring up. Uh, thanks for the clarity on that because uh, when we think of play, like when I'm thinking back to my childhood, which, of course, is ancient, um <laughs> It's a lot of brain power to think that far back. Um, but when I think of uh, playing, uh, especially messy play outside, you know, in the rain, in the mud, uh, you know, in the sand, in the dirt, um, and just coming in just looking like an a absolute mess. I mean, I, I would look like the garden, you know. Uh, right. and, and, but it, there was something about the tactile issues uh, aspect of it, the, the feeling of the dirt, the, the experience of that level of nature. Uh, and, and, and even as a child, I, I, I vividly remember that. Are these some of the things that you're talking about that are essential uh, that, that yeah. most parents don't really think about when they see their kids playing in the dirt and the mud or the grass or the garden or what have you. 
yes. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, it's not just pleasurable, although that's a big part of it too, but there is so much learning that's going on. And a lot of the work that I've done with kids has been around um, what we call STEM learning, science, technology, engineering, and math. So when you're sitting in the mud and you are making a mud pie, there is so much that you're learning about biology, about the trees that are growing nearby, the leaves, the the, uh, the way the roots are traveling through the dirt. You're learning, I mentioned before, about physics, about the properties of liquids and solids. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's just so much that's going on there that children have to experience firsthand. They can't just read it in a book and they can't just see it on a screen. They have to get out there and do it. Now, so so we, we're kind of talking about, like, you know, the tactile aspects of outside and playing in the mud and making mud pies. What about toys? Are there certain types of toys that are better than others uh, in, in being able to uh, create these new neural nets and neurons uh, to, to, for, for children to have a, a, a better and higher IQ? Well, I think that there are some toys that are, that are better than others. I, I don't know too many toys that are terrible. You know, I'm not about scolding parents about what they buy for their kids because as long as it's play and as long as you're enjoying playing with your child or your child is, you know, enjoying playing with the siblings, if it's a positive play experience for the child, you'll be able to see it on their face and you'll know if that's a good experience for them. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I do I do have some recommendations. I think if a toy is open-ended and can be used in more than one way, then that's a terrific toy. And I always come back to blocks, wooden blocks that um, are just, you know, the plain unsanded wood. Really young children can play with those. Even two- and three-year-old children can play with those. Wood is a wonderful material for children to work with. It's natural and it's beautiful. It's not too heavy. It's not too light. And the Mm -hmm. thing about a set of blocks is it grows with the child because the older the child gets, the more complex structures that they'll build. They can add other toys to to the blocks. They can add little action figures and little dolls to make a zoo or to make a you know, a, a colony on Mars or whatever their imagination is going to take them, the the wooden blocks will go there with them. So that's, that's just one example of an open-ended toy that children can use so many different ways. That's fantastic. So what about um, playing outside versus playing inside? Is there a significant difference or, or not really? I think there's a difference in that outdoor play is actually in danger. Like there are a couple of topics I address in the book where there is data that shows that children are doing less of this type of play than they used to, and outdoor play is one of those examples. So if you look at school schedules, there's less recess time now than there was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I -hmm. think the pendulum is starting to swing the other way. I'm hearing more from school districts that are looking at that at that again and realizing that that's having some negative consequences. Um, but the truth is that, that children do need more time outside than generally they have. And when they are outside, often it's in a structured um, sports activity or, you know, there isn't time to um, relax and explore. So mm-hmm. I encourage 
parents to go outside with their children, to take a walk with them and just look around the neighborhood. If you're in an an urban environment, you can still notice what's going on in the environment. You can look at the way the buildings are built. This goes back to the block play. I'm kind of crazy about block play. But you can look at... Yeah, let's go back to that because I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I remember blocks. I Absolutely, that was my thing. Um, There are seven stages you talk about in this. Sorry, I didn't hear the last thing that you said. I said there are seven stages or benefits, rather, that you talk yeah. about. Well, see, the interesting thing about block play is it's kind of like learning how to walk or learning how to talk, that all children seem to go through the same steps um, of learning. So a child learning to walk, they start out, you know, crawling, and then they'll start pulling up, <coughs> start kind of tottering around the room. Well, the same thing is true with block play. Like if you give a really young child, let's say a two-year-old, some blocks, initially they're not going to build with them. They're going to want to put them in a bucket and carry them around or they'll take a block and pretend that it's their cell phone. But if they're exposed to blocks often enough, they will start to build structures. And the first kinds of structures that they build will probably be either a tower or a road, like a simple stacking or laying down of the blocks. But what's really exciting is when they start figuring out how to balance one block between two other blocks, like a mm. like a plain old bridge. That is a really important step in a child's cognitive development because that means that they understand symmetry, they understand balance. They may not know those words yet, but they're doing mm-hmm. it with their hands. So that's, that's very exciting. And then they start being able to represent um, the idea of a house, or a skyscraper, or they can build buildings that are an imitation of the ones that they see in their own neighborhood, mm-hmm. or maybe the train station, or their school. So that, that's when it gets really exciting, when they start to represent things that they see. So when you're outside with your children, and you're going for a walk, or you're going on a trip, and you're seeing interesting buildings, and, you know, a parent could just say, hmm, I wonder how they made that house, or I wonder how they got that skyscraper so tall. When we get home, let's take out the blocks and we'll try to build that. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. Now, you know, obviously there's so many different types of play. We, we're, we're now we're, we're talking about these very, you know, uh, experiential, tactile types of play. What about uh, pretend play, like imaginary friends and things of the sort? Are those, would those be considered uh, uh, in this work? Or, or where would they be categorized? Yeah, absolutely. Now, pretending is definitely an essential play experience. And the, the good news about pretend play is that it's something that children will do spontaneously. We don't have to teach them how to pretend. And, again, it starts out really simple. So little tiny children will pretend to be the people in their lives that they love and they admire. So the first role that children take on when they're pretending is usually to be the mommy or to be the daddy and they'll Mm -hmm. pretend to drive the car cook the dinner and then as their brains develop as they become more um, sophisticated in Mm -hmm. their thoughts then they can start to pretend about things that aren't real aren't aren't true in their life so like magic like they pretend they have a magic wand or they pretend that they're a superhero or they pretend that they're a scuba diver when they are able to pretend things that are not in their immediate environment, that's a huge leap in their development because they're able to think symbolically and abstractly and they can come up with their own new ideas. So that's mm. really terrific. 
And children will do this naturally. So the the message to parents is to provide some open-ended times that are not structured, where they're not being told they have to do this or that, where this kind of play can develop freely. Mm, okay, okay, that's good to know. Um, what about, uh, I, I guess, you, you know, especially if you have siblings um, uh, or, or, or you have friends over, you know, when I was coming up, it was called roughhousing. <laughs> I don't know what it's called now, but I, I think you might use the term risky play and things of sort. It, it, yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, the things that usually would uh, cause my mother to pull her hair out. Uh, and, and uh, uh, but those, especially, you know, and I don't know if there's a difference between boys and girls in terms of that. I know boys, little boys are just absolutely suicidal. They're just kamikaze. We're absolutely nuts. <laughs> we just jump off of anything, run into anything, no, no matter what. Um, are, are those things, you, you kind of look at those kind of those things, some of those things, as positive. I do, I do. Now, I certainly don't think that children should be reckless or dangerous. That's different. You know, you shouldn't ride your bike off the roof of your garage, right? But oh, come children... on, man. What's going on? <laughs> what kind of show is this? Oh, sorry. <laughs> but, but here's the thing, though. Here's you the said you were an expert. But the truth is that playgrounds today are not as exciting as they used to be. That is really That's true. true. So they, they are safer. You know, the surfaces of the playgrounds are safer. They're spongier. And, you know, when children fall down, they're, they're not going to get hurt as, as frequently as they used to. So that's great. But playground equipment is not as tall as it used to be. You know, mm-hmm. when I was a kid, we had slides. They, I think they were like two or three stories tall, and you'd have this rickety ladder going up. And you just can't get away with making a playground like that now. No. So children need more opportunities to climb. They need more opportunities to run fast. They need opportunities to take that stick and throw it in the muddy puddle, even if it splashes a little bit. So I do think that within reason, parents are, are um, should be encouraged to let their children play freely and not be so quick to say, oh, be careful, slow down, don't do that. Because the way children learn to be safe is through this kind of practice. The way they learn how to climb is by having experiences climbing and falling down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. they'll get stronger, they'll become, they'll get more dexterity, they'll um, become better at balancing themselves. And the only way they're going to learn how to be really safe and to be good judge, judges of what's safe is from having that experience. Speaking, speaking of, um, I guess, balance, um, uh, and safe. Do you believe in like having like a a, a, a play schedule? Like, because there's different types of play, obviously, right? And you talk about mm-hmm. that in the book. Would you Would you recommend like having a weekly kind of schedule of like, well, today we're going to, you know, Monday we're going to do you know really messy play, and, and Tuesday we're going to go outside, or or do you look at it from a more of a structure of, of not not necessarily structured, but you know let let the kids have fun. Yeah, I I don't think that it should be a regimented thing. I feel that um, parents need to relax. I think okay. in generally, in general, parents are very stressed and they're concerned about, um, you know, the safety and well-being of their children. Mm-hmm. Um, and the parents I talk to, 
They, they just want what's best for their kids. So often what they need most is um, encouragement to relax a little bit, mm, to, not, okay. to not schedule them as much. So I'm all about, um, you know, allowing play to develop freely. And the reason why the book is divided into these 10 essential play experiences is, is just to remind parents of the kinds of play that perhaps they've forgotten about. So, you know, what I hope is when parents are, are reading Creating a Beautiful Mess, I hope that they'll read a couple chapters and then they'll put the book down and then they'll go and play with their kids. Like, mm-hmm. they may say, oh, I'd forgotten that playing with blocks could be so much fun or that you can build a dollhouse out of a cardboard box. I think I'll, I'll you know, see if my child wants to do that with me now. Or, um, you know, oh, I'd forgotten that you can um, finger paint with chocolate pudding. So we'll, we'll you know get out the the package of pudding from the cupboard and make some, some <laughs> something that we can mess around with for a few minutes. So not not in a regimented way at all, in a spontaneous way. But parents do need a reminder of what kinds of play are really fun. I That's good. Yeah, sure, absolutely, absolutely. Do you believe that parents should play side-by-side with their kids uh, uh, or kind of play by themselves or a mixture of both? I think I think that when children are young, when they're preschool and kindergarten, they really enjoy playing with their parents. And most children will say directly to their parents, play with me, play with me. And usually it's during the time that you're really busy. You know, you're cooking the <laughs> dinner, you're trying to get your work done, and your child is saying, play with me, play with me. So my advice to parents is, first of all, know that this is not going to last forever. This is a very specific time in their development when they want parents to play with them. And when they get a little bit older, when they're in grade school and they start to make friends, then their play with their peers is going to become more important. And then you're going to wish that they wanted to play with you and they won't anymore. So during that time when they're little and they're saying, play with me, try to carve out little bits of time. You don't have to put your whole, you know, work project aside for the whole evening. But a little bit goes a long way. So, and and that's even true with the children's own work, with their own homework. Mm -hmm. Like, work Mm -hmm. a little, play a little, work a little, play a little. Like, take a little play break just for five minutes and run around outside or play a little card game or play a little board game um, just for a little while and then come back to your work. And then you'll feel much more refreshed. The children will be ready to do their homework. Just You say humor is also important, too. Yeah. Like, like, literally, like, knock-knock jokes? Are you serious? Really? Yes, absolutely. You've got to do one, you know, right? So I'm already setting you up, right? So I know you have to have have the best bomb-diggity knock-knock joke of all time, (laughs) right? Maybe not the best, but I think I know the most popular one among four-year-olds. Okay. So the one, the one that I hear most often. So, so the joke that that um, kids will often learn how to tell first is a knock knock joke because it's a very simple structure, and you know, just like with the blocks, when the child gets to the point when they're able to do this, this is a really important milestone in child development. You wouldn't think that a knock knock joke really matters that much, but what it means is that the child has mastered this. Um, turn-taking of language. And so, you know, the knock-knock joke, one person says, knock-knock. The other person says, who's there? And then the child will say, boo. And you'll say, boo-hoo. And then the child will say, why are you crying? So <laughs> so that's like kind of the basic <laughs> that's cute. knock-knock that's joke. Cute. The kids okay. will tell. 
But what's so funny is when they're starting to learn to tell tell a knock knock joke, they they'll get the structure, but they won't get the humor yet. Of so, course. for example, this so trying to do a Dave Chappelle version of this wouldn't work with really. me. Wouldn't be wouldn't, <laughs> no, really no, not at right all. Now. They're not ready to go on. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, yes. But they'll be, you know, <sighs> they'll sit at the dinner plate table and they'll say knock knock, and you'll say who's there, and they'll say meatloaf, you know, because that's what they see right in front of them, and you'll say meatloaf who, and they'll say meatloaf, time to eat your mashed potatoes. And it's not a joke, you know, like, like it's not a punchline, but to them it's hilarious, right? Like they'll, cl- they'll crack themselves up. So what is that doing to the brain, to the child's brain as a result of them <laughs> making those associations? Well, they're learning, they're, they're learning vocabulary. They, you know, they might be using words in the joke that they wouldn't ordinarily use. So they're experimenting mm-hmm. with language. So there's the turn-taking, so there's the social aspect to it. But there's also a pattern, and it's a pattern in variations. And, you know, a knock-knock joke isn't that different from the kinds of code that computer programmers write. You know, they are writing um, certain symbols, or they're writing certain patterns. Well, you recommend this, making... too, as, a, as, a, as well, not to interrupt you, but you recommend coding and, and, and those kind of games. Yes? Well, I do. I mean, encoding is very similar to math in terms of um, the introductory skills that children will learn. You know, you in, in a math class, in a say a second or a third grade math class, you're learning about patterns, you're learning about variations on patterns, and some of the very um, introductory coding games or coding concepts are very similar. And, you know, telling a joke is another another pattern. It's another code. It's just we're just not used to thinking about that in terms of computer science. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but really, you know, just being able to predict a pattern, that's that's an introductory coding skill. Mm, that's fascinating. I like that. So um, this is this is absolutely incredible. I'd ne- you'd never think about these things, and that's why you have experts like yourself who do. Um, because it's something I think a lot of parents might take advantage of, uh, and 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 miss a lot of great uh, opportunities and moments uh, to to teach that child. Um, you even talk about uh, cuddle toys and relationships and care and, and developing caring relationships. So those kind of things, essentially, because I, you know, Lord, this is the first time ever on my show I've ever told this story. I had, when I was a kid, I had a um, uh, a little stuffed Snoopy. Aww. And I loved that darn thing. And uh, Snoopy would go everywhere. It probably had Ebola. I mean, it was just the most wretched, <laughs> terrible, germy little thing. But, of course, you know, if we couldn't find it, I couldn't go to sleep. Uh, but you say those are things that are necessary to develop caring relationships. Talk to us about uh, uh, yeah. a, a cuddle toy, the importance of a cuddle toy. Yeah. Well, cuddling something soft and small is one of the ten essential play experiences that I describe in creating a beautiful mess. And it's it's relevant to really young children. And it's so normal for children to develop these attachments. Not every child will. No, so it's not good. It's not good for me to have my Snoopy now. <laughs> well, I bet 
I bet that at some point you you lost the intensity of your interest in Snoopy. You probably still have fond feelings for Snoopy, but at some point you probably, I'm guessing, got to a point where you didn't have to carry Snoopy around. I think I might need some therapy, Doc. I think I might need to go in and have talk to somebody. But go ahead. Finish telling me about well, the importance of this. <laughs> well, one of, so my my point for parents is, this is a very normal part of child development. And if you really observe children interacting with these special cuddle toys, what you see is the development of some very caring behaviors. And you see it from both boys and girls. So it's not just a, a female thing. It's important mm-hmm. for boys to understand how to care for things as well. And you'll see them, you know, cradle the toy or be really gentle or talk to the toy in a way that's really reassuring. And in some ways, caring for a little toy is actually good practice for caring for a real animal. So when the children are a little bit older and they're able to help with the pets, this is a good experience for them. Mm-hmm. And it's also mm-hmm. just a great experience for becoming a compassionate human being. This is how we learn how to care for each other. So it's it's a wonderful behavior, it's a normal <laughs> behavior. And I think sometimes parents are too quick to try to get their child to get rid of that toy, and it, it will happen. The children will move on to other things, and sometimes it's the parent who misses that special toy. You know, the, the sentiment of having that little toy um, becomes more important to the parent than it does for the child. That's true. Now, what about board games? Because those are a little bit more sophisticated. What age uh, should should uh, uh, parents start introducing board games to their kids? Yeah, board games are definitely for older older children. And in in creating a beautiful mess, I sort of organized it so the first half of the book is geared more towards the younger children, and the second half is more towards the older children. So. Um, playing turn-taking games is one of the 10 essential play experiences. The the wonderful thing about board games is that people of different ages can play together. And mm-hmm. even a uh, even a four- or five-year-old who perhaps couldn't play that game independently is not quite ready to take turns or maybe doesn't have the counting or the reading skills yet to be able to play that game with other four- and five-year-olds. They can play that game with older brothers and sisters or parents or uncles and aunties or grandparents um, because they have someone who can sort of assist them a little bit, help them along. Um, But board games are are a wonderful social experience for children. They learn a lot from it too. Um, And it's something that often parents will enjoy as well. But I I warn parents in the book that we often think of Monopoly as the go-to board game Personally, I don't like Monopoly at all. I've never mm. finished a game of Monopoly. It goes on too long, and there's not there's too much chance to it. It you know you roll the dice and and you never know where you're going to land. There's not a, there's not enough strategy to it. So the mm-hmm. games that I think are really fun for families to play together of different ages are games where there's more decision making, there's more cooperation, there's more discussion that goes on. So. So try some other games besides Monopoly, and I've got some good recommendations in, in creating a beautiful mess if you're interested in taking a look. Okay, that's fantastic. So uh, how can people get uh, in contact with you um, before and after the book? Because I think that sure. this is incredible information, uh, and uh, it's it's something that, again, you just don't think about, but it's you're raising a human being here. Uh, it's very important. 
Well, it's a hopeful book. I hope that parents will read it and feel excited and hopeful about the good times that they can have with their children. And the best way to find it, frankly, is just to Google the title of the book. It's called Creating a Beautiful Mess. And if you put that in your search engine, you'll find it. My my author website is my name, which is com, and that's spelled A-N-N-G-A-D-Z-I-K-O-W-S-K-I.com. And I'll also mention that the publisher is called Red Leaf Press. So if you think of a red leaf, redleafpress.org, that's another good way to find it. But it's available in the usual online bookstores and, and in, in uh, you know, regular brick-and-mortar bookstores as well. Fantastic. Uh, Anne, thank you for being with me today. The book is Creating a Beautiful Mess. I am not going to mess <laughs> with Anne's last name uh, but go and get this book. It's essential. Uh, thank you for being on the show with me. Come back and let's talk about uh, some other processes. I would love to come back again. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.